hopefully all of you have gotten invitations to my daughter's graduation party. Uh, it's not a party. What do you call it? Open house from 2 to 5 at my house today. If you haven't, you are invited. Uh, it's an open invitation to our whole church family, and that will be from 2 to 5 today at my house. You're welcome to come. There are lots of food, so we need to get rid of it, so please come and eat. All right. This morning we're going back to Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 11, finishing up that chapter today, Revelation chapter 11. Chapters 10 and 11 are the pause between the 6th and 7th trumpet judgments. And as we went through chapter 11 the last two weeks, we saw John measuring the temple, and then last week the two witnesses that God will raise up in the last part of the tribulation as a testimony to the true Messiah and to the veracity of the judgment of God on the earth that it is from his hand. And as we get into the end of chapter 11, now we have the seventh trumpet finally being sounded by the angel and the end of the judgments that is poured out upon the earth. So we're going to read the last part of the chapter uh, of chapter 11 in verse revelation starting at verse 15 through verse 19 so verse 15 of revelation chapter 11 if you want to follow along as i read the bible says this and the seventh angel sounded and there were great voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our lord and of his christ and he shall reign forever and ever And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings, and voices, and thunderings, and an earthquake, and great hail." Let's have a word of prayer before we begin to get our message. Lord, thank you again for your word. We thank you for this book of Revelation, which as just at a cursory glance seems so confusing so many times. Lord, you've given us great riches here and great encouragement as believers. Lord, we know that you are king. We know that you will win the war. You have already won the war through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, help us to continue looking to you and at you. For hope. Lord, I pray now that you would send your spirit to work in our hearts, open our minds to receive that which you've had, what you have for us today. Use me as a weak instrument, Lord. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, that I would speak boldly your truth as you give wisdom. And Lord, we'll give you the glory for whatever is done today. We thank you for what you're going to accomplish. And again, we thank you for your word and this opportunity to share it together. And we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. As I said, chapter 10, chapters 10 and 11 are the great pause between the 6th and 7th trumpet judgments, just as we had a pause between the 6th and 7th seals as Christ was opening the book. And remember, the pauses that God gives in these places are there to encourage his people. It's to assure 
that his people that God is still in control, that God is still working behind the scenes on their behalf, that he is going to provide hope of deliverance, of salvation, of redemption. And even though they're the people who are living in the tribulation at this period who are believers in Christ have to experience the physical effects of this judgment, they will not go through the spiritual torment that people on earth will. And God is still on their side, if you will. He still knows that they are there and he has them in mind. And so we saw that back in chapter, uh, back to be, uh, with the two witnesses last week, that God brought them to Israel specifically with the message of hope that the Messiah is come and his kingdom literally is at hand as Christ is about to set up his kingdom on earth. And so that testimony from these two witnesses brings a remnant of Jews to believing faith in Christ the Messiah. And basically we see at the end of that section in verses 14 and 15 that the remnant is delivered and they are reserved by God to be brought into the Christ kingdom. But as we embark upon this part passage here, um, we have the beginning of the third woe as the angel blows the trumpet in verse 15. Now remember back in Revelation chapter 8, three chapters ago, at the end of chapter 8 and verse 13, John says, I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. This was right after the first four trumpets sounded. Those judgments were poured out. And then this angel said, Woe, there's, there's three more trumpets, but there's extremely bad judgment coming. We're going to call them woes because they are so severe. Remember the first woe, that fifth trumpet, was the hordes or the swarm of demon locusts that came out of the pit and tormented men on earth for five months in such a severe manner that they wanted to die, and people could not die. They could not escape this torment because of death. They couldn't even take their own life. That was the first woe. The second was worse. That's when the army of 200 million demons on horses are released upon the earth, to kill a third of mankind. Now, at that point, I'm sure man wanted to escape by de- or wanted to escape death by these demons, but it says they killed a third of mankind by fire and smoke and brimstone that came out of the horses' mouths. And so we have those two woes, and then it, there's a pause, and we think, man, what could get worse than demonic oppression and all this destruction that's been happening on the earth? And we're about to see. That's the seventh trumpet, the third woe. So this third woe is the seventh trumpet, which will contain, as we will see in the coming chapters, the seven bowl or vile judgments as they are poured out upon the earth in rapid succession right at the end of the tribulation just before Christ comes back. And that's where we are in the chronology of things right here. We're at just about the end of the tribulation, the end of those seven-year period. And these seven vials are about to be poured out. Now, I want to make a statement or give you a kind of a note here as we look at this seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet is the final concluding judgment against unbelievers on the earth. And it also announces the coronation of Christ as king on the earth. This is the beginning of his physical reign on the throne of David at the end of this seventh trumpet. So this trumpet announces both the coming judgment and the coronation of Christ 
but those haven't happened yet. They will, very shortly. Okay, the judgment will be poured out. Christ will come. He will set up his kingdom. But in that, I want you to understand this last trumpet judgment is not the same as the last trump that the Bible tells us about in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 that announces the coming of Christ at the rapture of the church. That will happen before the tribulation ever begins. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then Paul goes on and describes how we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That last trump in that verse is not this seventh trumpet. Some people want to equate the two. It is not the same. That last trump has happened already before any of this tribulation stuff started. Because the church is gone at this point. 1 Corinthians 15, 52 talks about that as well. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. That is not this seventh trumpet. That is the trump that is sounded at the rapture for Christians, for the church, as we are taken up into heaven to meet Christ in the air. So this seventh trumpet that we see here in Revelation 11 is the last trumpet judgment of the series of seven in the seventh seal that Christ has opened and it's ready to be poured out from God to the earth and prepare the coronation of Christ to be anointed as king of the world or set up on the throne as king of the world and uh, take his place as the rightful ruler on earth. And so that's where we are in, in Revelation 11 as we begin verse 15 here, right at the end of the tribulation in John's vision just as this seventh trumpet blows. Now, I want you to see the seventh trumpet announces judgment, but in this chapter, at the end of chapter 11, we don't have judgment being poured out right away. Remember, in this, after the sixth seal, way back when we were studying the seals, there was a pause, and at the beginning of that pause, there's a great silence in heaven. Here, we don't have great silence. As the seventh trumpet is revealed or blown and people begin to see what is going to be poured out upon the earth, there's a praise service that breaks out. And that's what we have here at the end of chapter 11. This praise service as people in heaven and the angels of heaven see and understand this last judgment of God poured out upon the earth. Instead of just standing there in awe in silence as they did with the sixth, trump, or the sixth seal, here... We have praise that's given to God. And that's what the rest of this chapter is talking about, is the praise that's given to God, not only for this last final judgment, but that leads to the coronation of Jesus Christ as king. That's what every believer is looking forward to, the coronation of Jesus Christ as king in his earthly kingdom. And then from there, after the thousand-year reign, we will transition directly from that into the eternal kingdom in heaven with Christ forever. So that begins the eternal joy that we have with Christ. And so we look forward to that. And that's why we have this, um, this praise service, really, that breaks out in heaven as this seventh trumpet is blown. So look at the verse 15 again. It says, The seventh angel sounded. There were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, if any of you are familiar with with 
Handel's Messiah, you will recognize this verse because this is one of the most popular parts of that musical uh, 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 composition. But it comes directly from this verse in Revelation. So the last judgments, I want you to understand, have not been carried out yet. We'll see the last seven vile judgments, the bold judgments being poured out on the earth. They haven't happened. They're about to happen. Christ has not been coronated physically at this point yet, but it's about to happen. And yet look at the the tone of this message of this praise. It says, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So even though the judgments haven't been carried out yet, and Christ has not been physically crowned or officially crowned and seated on the throne of David, the voices in heaven break out in praise to God because they know what's coming. Throughout the Bible, when you look at prophecy and especially God's promises, what you have is this situation where many times God will refer to things that will happen in the future from our perspective as having already happened. They are past. Now remember, God does not exist in time. Time exists in God. So God sees everything all at once as if it exists right now. And from God's perspective, therefore, his future promises are present and already fulfilled to him. Now we look at it from our perspective and to us they're future. But based on God's faithfulness, his absolute faithfulness that will not fail anything that God says will happen or that he promises he will do is an absolute. And so we look at it in scripture just as if it's already been fulfilled. That's how Israel saw a prophecy. And that's what we see here when the voices in heaven, it says the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord. Not yet physically is the Lord on the earth. Not yet has Satan been conquered and bound and cast into the pit. But because God said it was going to happen, heaven is already rejoicing as if it has. Because they know it will. And in very short order. So here we have this rejoicing in worship over the coronation of Christ as king of the earth that breaks out before it actually happens, but we know it will. So a mighty praise service here breaks out in heaven at the beginning of, at, as the seventh trumpet is, is blown. Now, we don't know the identity of these voices. It says, the, a great voice is in heaven. It doesn't tell us who those voices were. Okay, We know that there's people in heaven or, or beings in heaven that we've already discussed in Revelation up to this point. We know the church is in heaven, represented by the 24 elders. We're going to see them in just a second. Okay, We know the angels are in heaven, including the four, the word, the word beasts is in the King, King James. Uh, it's interpreted living beings. Those, we assume, are the cherubim based on their description as we looked in chapter 4 and 5. Okay, so we know the angels are in heaven. Maybe it's them or maybe they're part of it. We know there's martyred saints from the tribulation that are awaiting their glorified bodies. They're in heaven. Okay, they've already prayed from under the altar. They may be joining in this chorus of praise. We don't know who this is, but it says great voices, loud voices in heaven start this praise service to the Lord. Then look at the content of their praise. Again, this phrase, the kingdom of his, this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, I don't know if you have King James or another version. If you have King James, both of those kingdoms are plural. 
But in the original manuscripts, both of those kingdoms should be singular. Okay? It was made plural in King James. The earlier manuscripts have those words as plural. So it should read, the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of, our, of his Christ. It's a singular. The word in Greek is basileia. It means to have a realm or a domain of a supreme ruler, and that's exactly what it is. This has become the realm or the supreme domain of Jesus Christ. Now, it always has been, but remember, Satan usurped power or authority over that, not from Christ, but under Christ, through sin. When he introduced sin into the world with Adam and Eve, he usurped the title deed, if you will, to the earth. And Satan is called the ruler of this world. So therefore, when we look at this kingdom or the basilea of the world, it's talking about what Satan rules over presently. Now, Christ himself called Satan the ruler of this world three times in the book of John. In John chapter 12, verse 31, John chapter 14 and verse 30, and John chapter 16, verse 11, Jesus himself refers to Satan as the prince of this world. Now, it's interesting that he uses the word prince. The word there is kind of like a underking. Herod the Great was an underking, if you will, that was appointed by the Roman government. The Roman government was the supreme authority. Herod was the king. And in the same way, Satan is the king of this world, the prince of this world, but he's still under the authority of God and of Christ. So Satan doesn't have absolute authority. And yet God has literally allowed him and given him the power to rule on the earth. And the, and the kingdoms talks about nations. Now, look around today. Go back and look through history. How many nations as a whole throughout their history have exemplified God in how they live, their laws, their celebrations, the things they uphold? How many nations in history have actually put God above themselves or above Satan as, a, as the pattern of their existence? Zero. None. Okay, now you can say, well, what about Israel? Okay, well, what about Israel? They come out of the wilderness, or they come out of Egypt into the wilderness, the first thing they do is what? Complain against God. Right? The first generation forfeited the promised land. They got into the promised land, and it didn't last very long before they were worshiping idols. So the nation of Israel doesn't even exemplify a nation of God. So every nation that has existed on this earth has been ruled by Satan because he is the prince of the world. And so you can say, well, it's all the kingdoms, all the nations of the world, and yet all of them are under the influence and rule of Satan. And so John here hears this voice in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom, all the nations together that belong to Satan, one kingdom, is now become the kingdom of Christ. Now, put yourself in the tribulation period, all right? We know it's going to be a one-world government under the Antichrist. So, literally, it is a kingdom at that point, and it's ruled directly by Satan. So, we have the kingdom of this world, of Satan's kingdom. But it says, this kingdom is become the kingdom of, of our Lord and of, this, of his Christ. Now, here again is that that. Something that's going to happen, but it's already passed. 
In the Greek, it's called the proleptic aorist tense, okay? The proleptic aorist. I'll give you a quiz on that later, so you might want to write that down. No, what it means is what I already explained. They look at this, and it's something that is future to happen, but they look at it as and explain as if it already has. And it's specific to these types of promises and prophecies because God's faithfulness will not fail. And so the kingdom that will, from our perspective, become Christ's is already his. The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, it doesn't just say Christ. It says of our Lord and of his Christ. This means that the kingdom of earth belongs to God the Father. There's the Lord. In fact, if you go through the book of Revelation, more times than not, the word Lord refers to God the Father, not Jesus Christ. And so here it's referring to God the Father. And then it says, of his Christ. It means the world belongs to God the Father and God the Son. Now, they are one. They both, in fact, all three parts of the Godhead were involved in creation. So God owns the world. He made it. He owns it. He is in control of it. But here we have reference to both the Father and the Son. The Lord is referring to the Father's ownership and the kingdom of God on the earth, as well as his Christ. Now, his Christ, the word Christ there is not a name. And we use that to name Jesus Christ. We say, well, Jesus Christ did this, or we we study Jesus Christ, or we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. Okay? Christ is not his name. Christ is his title. In the Greek, that word means the anointed one, the Messiah. And so what he's saying, what, what these voices are saying is, The kingdoms of Satan on this world now are become or are under the authority of God the Father and his Messiah. Now, his Messiah is Jesus Christ. And we know as we get through Revelation, as we continue to read, that he will be the king of the world. He literally will physically come and set his feet on this earth and sit literally on the throne of David in Jerusalem and rule for a thousand years, and there will be no other kings or nations that will have autonomous authority. It will all be under Jesus Christ. And so it says, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, referring to God God the Father and the Son, But the point is, is that Christ always has had authority. There never was a point at which God has lost authority over the world. He gave permission and gave power to Satan to rule for a short time. It's temporary. But God is the ultimate authority. And at the end of the tribulation, Christ will again seize total control and authority in person. What we're missing at this point is Christ in person. Now, the church should be that person representing Jesus Christ on earth. And yet, if we look at the church as a whole and its character and its actions and say, okay, how well do we measure up to Jesus Christ himself? We fail that test. And that's why the church does not have the influence that Jesus Christ himself would if he were on the earth. It's not because, well, we're just human beings and we can't do it. No, we are his representatives. And we are to carry out his ministry after he left the earth. He left that commission with us. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit, of God in us. And yet we're more concerned with our daily lives and the things we want from this earth than we are about the kingdom of Christ. 
And that's why the church has failed. But Christ will come, and he will set up his authority again on the earth in person at the end of the tribulation period. And it says, the kingdoms of our, of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, forever and ever means all eternity. That means time present, time past, and time future. For our perspective, in God, it's just, that's the way it is. Okay, God doesn't have to look backwards. God doesn't have to look forwards. God is. God exists. Time exists in him, and so he sees, again, everything at the same time. But he reigns as king forever and ever. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, remember, this is Isaiah's prophecy about the coming of the Messiah the first time, Jesus Christ's birth in Bethlehem. And Isaiah the prophet says this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We know that part. What does the next verse say? Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. Jesus Christ reigns forever and ever. In Daniel chapter 7, when we were studying Daniel in Bible study, we went over this. Daniel has a vision, and he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man come with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Now, we saw this in Revelation chapter 5. The fulfillment of this was in Revelation chapter 5. Verse 14 in Daniel 7, he goes on, he says, And there was given to him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So the kingdom that Christ establishes, not just in the millennial kingdom, but at creation, is forever. He didn't lose it to Satan. He's recovering full authority. But God has always been in control. Christ has always been in control. One more passage in Luke chapter 1. This is the announcement of Jesus' birth to Mary. Remember the words of the angel. He says, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great. He shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. This is fulfillment of what we call the Davidic covenant, when God promised David that his throne would be established forever. That his seed would reign on the throne in Jerusalem forever. Now physically, there was a pause when the kingdom was divided and eventually both the north and southern kingdoms of Israel were put in exile and conquered by other nations. But Christ never lost control. His kingdom is forever and it will never cease. And so here's these great voices praising God because to them this has already happened. Jesus is still in control. He will always be in control. He will rule forever and he's about to come to earth to start that earthly rule for a thousand years. But to them, it's already happened, and so they praise the Lord for it. So that's verse five, verse 15. Then we get to verse 16, and now we have the church joining in. This is the 24 elders. 
It says, And the four and twenty elders which sat before God in their seats fell before their fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. Now is Christ seated yet? No. But here's the twenty four elders saying the same thing. It's already happened. Christ is on the throne. Because they know it, there's, there's no chance that it can't happen. Now, the 24 elders here represent the raptured church, which is in heaven at this point. Okay? We saw that before. And here is their worship or their contribution to this praise service. Now, look at the posture of their worship first because it shows us their posture in verse 16, it says, And the 24 elders, or the four and 20 elders, which sat before God on their seats. Those, that word seats there in the Greek means thrones. We've seen that in the past in chapter 4. The 24 elders which sat on thrones around the throne of God, representing the church of Christ. But they sit on their thrones, and then they, here they fall upon their faces and worship God. As they begin to worship God and praise him for what he's about to do, They fall on their faces. Now, they're in heaven already. They've got glorified bodies. Okay, this is the church, the redeemed church, the glorified church in heaven with Christ, already the bride of Christ. And yet they fall on their faces before God in heaven. Normally, they're sitting on the thrones, but this is the second or third time we've seen as they worship God, they fall on their faces. See, here's the attitude and posture of worship that we've lost in our modern-day thinking. How often do we worship God or pray that as we do that, we really get a sense of how much higher and how much greater God is than us? How much of our worship is going to God and trying to force him to do what we want, or for him to just accept whatever we feel like giving him. See, we've lost that attitude, not just of reverence, but of submission before the authority and power of an almighty God. The elders in heaven here are in heaven, sitting on thrones, and yet they fall on their face when they worship the Lord. See, we forget who God is when we worship many times. We forget who we're talking to. We forget who we're talking about or singing about or praying to. And we treat him like some servant of ours that's supposed to do what we want him to do. And that's not worship. Worship is giving God the worth-ship that he deserves. And so much of what we call worship is really not worship because it's done in an attitude of selfishness and pride or whatever, something other than absolute submission to the authority of God. That's the picture, the parable the prodigal son gives us. Remember, he gets his inheritance, he goes and he wastes it on himself and riotous living. And then finally, when he ends up in a pig pen, he thinks to himself, well, if I could just go back and ask my father to take me in as a slave... I don't deserve to be a son anymore, but I want to be a slave just so I have a place to live and something to eat. And that's how he goes back to his father. He crawls back asking him to be a slave, and yet his father runs with open arms and and restores him, rejoices over his sonship, and exalts him as a son. 
But the attitude that we have when we worship God is, God, I deserve to be the exalted son. And the only one who deserves that is Jesus Christ. We only deserve to be slaves. In fact, we don't even deserve to be God's slaves because we've chosen our own way, we've chosen our own path, and we've rejected God for the most part. We are born in sin. We are lost in that condition. And it's only the grace and love of Jesus Christ and God the Father that brings us out of that. And it's the attitude of humility coming before God, saying, God, all I want is to be your slave. That's the attitude of worship. And that's what these elders represent here. And yet we've lost that attitude of unworthiness as we worship God. We think we are something. We're good people. God needs to to do something for us. We deserve or we're entitled to God's favor. That's absolutely not true. True worship happens when we realize our own unworthiness. And so here we have the redeemed, already glorified, literally sitting in the presence of God, And they fall on their faces because they know they don't deserve to be there. That's the posture of their worship. Look at the content of their worship. They say in verse 17, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee great power and hast reigned. Again, past tense. God already has done it. Now I want to point out how they describe the Lord here. They say, use this phrase, which art and wast and art to come. Now, this phrase has already appeared three times in Revelation as we have studied it, describing Jesus Christ. Here, we're worshiping God and the Son, but describing Jesus Christ, we've already seen this phrase three times. In chapter 1, verses 4 and 8, and also in chapter 4 and verse 8, this phrase appears about Jesus Christ. And it's a statement about the eternal nature of God, both the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or I should say all three, not both. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, their eternal nature. And yet, in the original manuscripts here in chapter 11, we don't have the entire phrase. Now, in King James, again, it does. But in the original manuscripts, it does not. In the earliest manuscripts, it leaves out that last part and are to come. Why? Well, the reason is this. Put yourself in the context. What are they praising God for? For the coronation of Jesus Christ as king of the earth. That means he's already come. So they're not looking forward in this worship to Jesus Christ coming as king of the earth. He's there. And so now they say literally, which art and must. You are. And you were. And you are here. That's their praise. And so the elders are thanking God for his sovereignty, for the reign of Jesus Christ, that he's the ultimate ruler on the earth. Not that he has all of a sudden stepped up to the plate and started doing what he ought to do. He has always been doing that, and that's what they're praising. You always have, and you do now. You rule with great authority. Now, up to the beginning of the Great Tribulation through history, And even during the tribulation, as we've seen, when God begins to pour out these judgments upon the earth, many people will doubt this point. Even believers doubt this point, that God has always reigned, that God's reign is eternal, and Jesus Christ is an eternal king, okay? Now, we won't say that. We don't say that out loud. 
Because the Bible says, well, Jesus is eternal. He's the eternal king. Sure, okay, we have to agree with that. But how do we live in our lives? Do we live as if Jesus has always been in control? Do we live as if Jesus is in control of our lives today? As if he is our king? The choices we make, the places we go, the things we do, do we live as if Jesus is truly our king and he is in control of our lives? Well, the truth is that God is in control. He always has been. He always will be. We have to accept that fact. Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. It belongs to him. He owns it. He's in control. Job 42, this is after, remember, Job's discussion with God about why God didn't give him the answers he wants, and then God gives him three chapters of questions which he has absolutely no answers for and he can't answer them and then he basically says okay I I have heard you and now I've seen you and now I repent in dust and ashes I'm I'm nothing okay but he says in Job 42 2 I know that thou canst do everything that no thought can be withholden from you God knows everything and he controls everything Lamentations chapter 3 verses 37 and 38 this is the prophet Jeremiah Jeremiah lived through the worst of Israel's history when they were being conquered on both sides. They were being put into exile, and Jeremiah was left in the rubble by himself. And God said, prophesy. And in Lamentations, he says, who is it? I'm sorry, who is he that saith, and it cometh to pass, when the Lord commandeth it not? Nothing happens unless God commands it. In verse 38, he says, out of the mouth of the Most High proceedeth not evil and good. Does God not allow both bad things and good things to happen to us from our perspective? But Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So Jeremiah knew. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul uh, reviews or, or says this, he repeats it, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Now, here's the big question. Why does God allow bad things to happen? Right? If God is such a good God, if God is in control, why do bad things happen in the first place? I'm not going to answer that. I'll answer that in a minute. Okay? But that's the question that's on our minds. I don't understand how God could do that. I don't understand how God could allow that to happen. It's not for us to understand. That's the point. Okay? Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible. Visible and invisible means the physical world and the spiritual world. That includes demons and angels, by the way. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And, by him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. It all exists, it all happens, because God says so. He's in control. In Psalm 115, David puts it very succinctly. Our God is in the heavens, he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. God never lost control. And here in Revelation, the elders are praising God, not just for his taking authority at this point in earth's history, but that he has always had authority. He hasn't lost it. The words has taken are in perfect tense. Now, if you studied English and you can remember anything from it, 
Perfect tense means basically it's already happened. It's completed, perfected, okay? And so even though God has allowed Satan to be the prince of the world for a short time, Satan doesn't have ultimate control. It's still in God's control. No matter what's happening in your life right now, in the past, or what may happen in the future to you, God is still in control of it. You have to accept that. That is the truth of Scripture. That's why Romans 8.28 starts off, and we know that all things work together for good. But we don't always live like we know that God is in control. We may not see good in the circumstances that we're in according to our plan and our expectation, and there's the problem. We want our life to be according to our plan and our expectation, not God's. We don't want God's plan because God's plan includes things that we don't want. We don't want to suffer. We don't want loss. We don't want pain. I mean, if we had our choice, we wouldn't want death. But that's not God's plan. The greatest fear that, any, that most people have today is the fear of dying. Okay? For Christians, I guess as human beings, yes, that's a fear. But as Christians, think about it. Dying is nothing more than the release from a sinful body that suffers to a perfect body that will never suffer. Why are we afraid of that? Because our plan is not God's plan. Our thoughts are not God's thoughts. And our problem is, again, we don't want God to be the absolute authority. We go to God in prayer. We go to God even in worship, and we want him to do things our way according to our preference. That's neither worship nor faith because we're telling God now what he needs to do for us. And we don't know that all things work together for good according to God's plan. By the time we get to heaven, we're going to realize how wrong we were about our life. I I think as we get there, if if all of us go up in the rapture, we're going to be standing there, and I think we're all going to be going, oh, man, if I only understood. Oh, if I could only have seen what I see now, we would have lived totally different. We would have chosen different things for our life. But we're not God, and we're tainted by sin, we still have the influence of sin, and so we give in to it, and we do things our way, and we want God to do things our way. But when we get to heaven, we're going to be bowing before him, because we'll realize Christ is king. He always has been king. And here's the picture of it, as the elders bow before him. They represent all the redeemed and glorified church of Christ, and they're praising him because now they understand the supreme authority and sovereignty of God that has always existed. And so they're praising him. They say, yeah, you you had the authority from the beginning. We just didn't see it. You've always been in control. We missed it. But now we see it perfectly. That's the worship of heaven. And that's the attitude of worship that comes in heaven because all of a sudden when we get there, we're going to realize we're nothing. We don't deserve to be there. We really weren't in control of everything that we did. We wanted to be. 
And then God used our sins and our wrong choices to chastise us, to push us, to to goad us into going the right direction, which we rarely ever do. But in heaven, we'll realize all of that. And that's what we see as these elders worship the Lord. Let me ask you this question. Does our worship and prayer to God always begin with the premise that God truly is in control? Or do we go to God a lot of times in prayer complaining? God, I don't understand why you did this. God, why am I the only one? God, why, can you, why, why do you allow this? Okay, and here's the big question. God, how, if you are such a loving God, how can you allow such evil to happen in this world and especially evil happen to your people? How? I don't understand. We don't have to understand. We just have to believe what God says is right. We just have to believe that when it says, and we know that all things work together for good, that's faith. We trust the things. We accept them as truth, even though we don't understand them. We sang this morning, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Is that the way you feel every morning when you wake up? Jesus, I'm going to rest in you. I just... I can see your love more and more today. Or do you get up and you look at whoever's across the room and go, leave me alone. Right? Do we wake up in the morning with peace from God and a joyful heart? Do we go to bed at night with peace from God and a joyful heart after going through one of those days? We sing it. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. Is that only apply as we're singing the song and then afterwards it doesn't matter, right? See, that's the difference. If God's in control, then we can rest in him. We can trust whatever he says is true. We sing, great is thy faithfulness. How many times have you questioned whether God cares about you? Whether God hears your prayer? If you don't believe it, don't sing it. If you're going to sing it, believe it. So our worship and prayer don't begin, our lives don't begin with the premise that God's in control. We show it all the time in our life. And how often have you prayed this, Lord, please provide what I need. This morning we prayed again in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Do we truly rely on God to provide for us or do we go around complaining because we don't have enough money that week or don't have enough food in the refrigerator or we run out of gas or whatever the situation is? Are we truly trusting God to provide for us? And it's not what we want, it's what we need. God, provide what I need. And then we go, but that's not what I need, I want this. See, our biggest problem is that we don't understand. Either we don't understand or we don't believe that God is the absolute authority. And that he is sovereign. And that he is in control. And he is the almighty God who is all-powerful and all-knowing and always wants to do its best for us. We don't believe that because otherwise we would live differently. And if we did, it would look more like what we see from the, from the worship of the elders here in chapter 11, Revelation. Too often, our attitude is more like verse 18. Look at verse 18. And the nations were angry. Take a poll. How many of you did not get angry this week? I take my hand down. Okay, thank you for being truthful. 
I like to ask this question to my kids, sometimes to people, and I need to ask it to myself more often. Why are you angry with God? No, 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 I'm not angry with God. You just, you don't understand the circumstance. Why are you angry with God? No, 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 it's not, it's not God, it's this person. Why are you angry with God? Isn't he in control? The nations are angry. God is sovereign over all things and all men, and even over all the demons. We've seen that. They can't do anything without his permission. And just because we don't understand why he allows certain things to happen doesn't mean that he doesn't care or that he doesn't know or that he can't help. He will do what's best. Not our best. What he knows is best. And that's where we get messed up. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We have to accept the absolute authority and sovereignty of God. It's a fact of Scripture. It's a fact of his existence. And it's what our faith is based upon. Verse 18, the elders sing about the anger of the nations. This is the response of those unbelievers on the earth. It says, The nations were angry, and thy wrath has come, the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldst destroy them which destroy the earth. People who don't want God's way will be angry with God all the time, no matter what. Okay, They're angry that God didn't give them what they want. They're angry that God is rewarding other people instead of them. They're, rewarding that they're, they're angry that God is chastising them. They're angry that God's judgment. And that's, we see all that in verse 18. The unbelieving nations of the earth will try to escape the judgment of God. They'll continue to not believe. That was the theme of so far, all of the judgments so far. They want to escape God's wrath, but they don't want to believe. And we're about to see how because they cannot escape his wrath, now they rage against him right up to the end of the tribulation. And it culminates as the nations of the earth gather together to fight Jesus Christ himself in the battle of Armageddon with the delusion that they may somehow overcome him. That's an unbeliever's thought pattern. God's not in control. God's not all sovereign. God's not all powerful. That's Satan's point in life is to help us believe that God is not in control and so here the elders talk about the anger of unbelievers toward God and Jesus Christ because of God's wrath according uh, uh, on their sin because of God's rewarding of those who follow him in Romans chapter 12 there's a verse that says uh, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep did you ever get jealous because somebody else was recognized or got something and you didn't Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. That's what it says. Why are we angry? Look at who he rewards. He says, he rewards thy servants, the prophets. This is all who have proclaimed thus, saith the Lord. That starts from Moses all the way up through the two witnesses that we saw last week. God rewards them for faithfulness. He rewards all the saints. These are all the ones who trust in God. From the Old Testament to the New Testament and into the tribulation, God will reward them. Remember, in the, the seven churches, he told several, if you overcome, I will give you a crown of life. There's a crown of righteousness. 
Those rewards come from God. And then he summarizes, and he says, them that fear thy name. And he's describing all those who trust in the Lord, regardless of our position or status or time period that we live in. That's God's reward. He will reward them that trust him. But the nations will be angry. This is a reference to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is prophetic about the kingdom of Christ, the millennial kingdom. And it starts this way. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Sounds just like what the elders are saying. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. They don't want to be under God's control. They want their own way. That's an unbeliever. Same thing that the elders are saying here in, the, in, the, in heaven. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Talking about Christ's rule. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And we know that will be the case. At the battle of Armageddon, Christ will literally trample his enemies until his robes are stained with blood and the blood runs as deep as the horse's bridles. He rules them with a rod of iron. And when Christ sets up his kingdom in the millennial kingdom, believe me, he's not going to be a pushover on the throne. He will rule with a rod of iron. And those who will rebel against him will suffer quickly and severely. That doesn't mean he's not compassionate and not merciful and not loving. It means he demands righteousness. Psalm 2 ends this way. Be wise, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. I think we use that word trust too lightly. We say we trust in God, and then we live like we don't. We say we trust in God, and then we get angry at God. Oh, no, it's not God. Yes, it is God that we're angry with. If we trusted in God, our lives would be different. But here, the the elders are rejoicing because God is going to destroy his enemies. And they're angry about it. Verse 19, the temple of God was opened in heaven and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. There were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. I'm not going to take a lot of time on this because we're out of time. I'm just going to give you this The imagery of the temple that John receives here as the seven trumpet blows represents the unbroken fellowship that we will have with both God the Father and God the Son as we enter heaven personally, as we are in his presence. Remember, we've already seen images from the temple. We saw this altar of incense. We've seen possibly the brazen altar in heaven in John's vision, okay? Here we see the temple and the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God's Covenant. Now, this is not the physical Ark of the Covenant that was in the tabernacle in the temple. God did not take that up to heaven, and now it's in heaven. Okay, What is on earth is a representation of what happens in heaven. The worship of Israel was a representation of the worship that happened in heaven. And so here we have literally the altar of God, or the Ark of God's Covenant in heaven. The original, not the one that was a facsimile on earth that Israel carried around for 40 years. Okay? This is the Ark of God's Covenant. The actual heavenly Ark 
representing God's presence, his person. Remember, on the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat, two cherubim with their wings touching. That's where the blood was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement. But that's where God's presence rested. And when the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire sat on the mercy seat, then God was there. Israel knew that. And here we have the Ark of God's Covenant in heaven. That means God is there. That is his presence. And we will be there in person to witness it. But look at what John says. There was seen in his temple the Ark of the Covenant. And we may just pass over that, but I want you to think about these little things like this. On earth, the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies. It was separated from the holy place by a large, thick curtain. No one could go in there to see the Ark of the Covenant except the high priest once a year. And Moses went in to talk with God face to face. That was it. No one was allowed to see the Ark of Covenant when God's presence was there on it. Here, it is seen by all. God's presence is right there for everyone to see, to fellowship with. That's the difference when we get to heaven. We're not going to be separated by a physical body. We're not going to be separated by a veil like Israel was for so many years. The Ark of His Covenant is going to be open for all, right there for everybody to see. And it signifies the eternal, perfect communion that we have with God. We will be in his presence personally, and we will commune with him face to face for eternity. And that's what there is to praise God about. Now, we still have a little bit of our lives left to live, unfortunately. I can't wait to see the ark of God's covenant in heaven and be face to face with him. Okay, that's living. What we're doing now is just suffering a little until we get to living. But literally in heaven, everything we have in Christ will be right there in front of us, full access to all the riches of God. John sees lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. We've seen this before. The lightnings, the voices, the thunderings, the earthquake, great hail, all of them indicative of God's judgment. And this is the introduction to the judgment that is about to fall as the tribulation ends. The most severe judgment up to this point is about to be poured out upon the earth in rapid fire order as we get into the seven bowl judgments. I'm going to leave you with this question. When Christ comes back, will we be rejoicing in his fellowship or will we be raging at his wrath? How you live now and the decisions you make now will determine that. Your heart condition now, you can't just say, well, the Bible says, you know, if I pray and I believe, that's, that's good. I got my fire insurance. That's not the way it works, folks. Either he is king now and will be forever, or he is not your king now and you will be in judgment forever. That's the only choice we have. And if he's our king now, then we will have that eternal fellowship. And if he's not our king now, then we will go through eternity in judgment. We won't have to worry about the tribulation. We may 
but it's eternity that we have to worry about. Let's close there. We'll pick up chapter 12 next week. Lord, thank you again for your word. We thank you for your admonition, your challenge to us. And Lord, seeing all these things are about to come, what manner of persons ought we to be? I pray that you would just help us to live in faith, showing that we do truly trust you, that we know that you are in control, and that we can praise you as the elders praise you and worship you. Lord, in an attitude of submission, but rejoicing in your authority. And Lord, we give you the the credit, we give you the praise, we give you the glory, we give you everything because it's all yours. And we thank you for what you're doing and what you're going to do and the hope that we have of eternity in heaven with you. Just bless us now, but convict us. I pray that your spirit would go with us and help us not to be hearers and not doers, deceiving our own selves, but to take this and meditate upon it so we might become the people that you want us to be. We thank you again in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. We're going to close this morning with hymn number, uh, hymn number, I'm sorry, 148. 148, will Jesus find us watching? Are we looking forward to that day he comes back?